Amen. Well, happy Easter, everybody. Easter. Wonderful to see you. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon this morning. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. And we're going to look together at verses 30 to 32. Ephesians 4, 30 to 32. I'm going to ask you if you'll please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit from heaven to do what only he can do to bless the reading of this word and now especially the preaching of your holy word. May you make the proclamation of your word effectual in our hearts and in our lives to teach us what you want us to know, to show us what you need us to see, and to send us forth with your word treasured in our hearts, eager to go and do all you have commanded and to believe all you have revealed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, two themes come together in one culminating moment. On the one hand, today is the most holy, sacred, and joyful day in the annual life of the church. Today we come to the end of Lent. We emerge from the darkness of Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday into the glorious morning light of Easter. This is why we worship on Sunday as the Christian Sabbath. It's the Lord's day, the day Christ the Lord rose from the dead. This is resurrection day. He is risen. Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus vanquished death forever. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 1... God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is why we worship and rejoice today on this Easter morning. 
Now, on the other hand, today is also the final sermon in our series on the one another's of Scripture. And for anyone who's new or hasn't been here for the whole thing, let me just give a recap of how we got to where we are today. I've taken all the one another commandments in the Bible, and they're mostly in the New Testament. I took all of the one another commandments, and I grouped them into ten categories, and I call these the ten one another commandments. And then I grouped those ten into three different sections. And within those sections, each commandment flows out of the previous one. All ten are connected together. In section one, we covered the first two commandments. Love one another and be at peace with one another. These two are absolutely foundational for everything else that follows. Everything comes from those first two. In section two, we covered four, the next four commandments. Welcome one another. Encourage one another. Honor one another. Serve one another. And these are four positive commands for what love one another looks like in practice in the church. And then section three, the final section with the final four commandments. Admonish one another. Bear with one another. Confess your sins to one another. And finally, forgive one another. These last four are the commands for what love one another looks like in the midst of all the negative stuff that we do to each other. These tell us how to love when it's hard, when people aren't that lovable, and how to be at peace one another in the midst of sin and strife. And in that list, those final four commandments I mentioned, the very last one in section three there is our topic this morning. Forgive one another. Now, at first thought, it might seem that, uh, it might seem as though Easter and forgive one another don't quite fit together. So I need to do some fancy footwork this morning to try and, how can I get these to fit? How can I finish the series and also talk about Easter? But actually, they fit together beautifully. Uh, resurrection and forgiveness fit together hand in glove. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification, being declared right. Or righteous before the throne of God's justice. How does that happen when we're sinful? It happens because our sins are forgiven. Our rebellious life up to that moment where we put our faith in Christ is forgiven. Forgiveness of sins is the heart of justification. And Paul says Jesus was raised from the dead so we could be forgiven. He didn't just go to the cross for our forgiveness. He also came up out of the grave for our forgiveness. So Paul did the work for me this morning. He already put those two things together in Romans 4.25. 
And what I want to do this morning is explore this connection between resurrection and forgiveness with you. And we're going to do it from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. So, let's turn now to the Scriptures. According to Paul, forgiveness requires new life. Jesus was raised for our justification, for our forgiveness. Forgiveness requires new life. And forgiveness also confers new life. Forgiveness is life-giving, and forgiveness is life-changing. Paul says in verse 30 of our text, in Ephesians 4, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He says we were sealed for the day of redemption. Now to understand what this means, we need to take a step back and look earlier in the letter of Ephesians. So go back to chapter 2. Beginning of chapter 2. The Bible teaches that all of humanity is born dead in their sin. Ephesians 2. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. One of the Protestant reformers, William Tyndall, paraphrased that line, by nature children of wrath. He said what that means is we were all born heirs of damnation. Children of wrath. We are spiritually dead on arrival in this world. And our only hope of salvation is if God, in His mercy, raises us from spiritual death and brings us to the risen Jesus to have our sins forgiven. Jesus is alive so He can forgive our sins. And we need to be made spiritually alive so that we can come to Him for that forgiveness. Staying in Ephesians 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In verse 6, He raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. You see, forgiveness requires new life. Paul underlines this point in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 2.13, he says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Resurrection and forgiveness belong together. 
Because Christ rose from the dead, you too, you too can be raised from spiritual death, forgiven of all your sins, and live a new life, a changed life in God's forgiveness. That's the first resurrection taught in the scriptures, but there is a second resurrection as well. And this second resurrection is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 4.30 in our passage. You were sealed for the day of redemption. And this is directly connected. This second resurrection is directly connected to the first. Paul makes this point earlier again in Ephesians. He says in chapter 1 verses 13 and 14... In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is the seal, the divine down payment of our inheritance that's coming to us one day as we eagerly wait to take possession of it. This inheritance is nothing less than the resurrection of the body. The day of redemption is the day of resurrection. We are sealed for that day of resurrection. It's the day when the physical body will be redeemed from the grave. Paul says in Romans Uh, 8.23, he says that we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is the seal of our redemption on that day. The Spirit is the divine certification that this body is postmarked for the resurrection. We have been raised to spiritual life. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit in anticipation of the day when not only the soul is finally fully saved, but the body is finally fully saved as well. The body, redeemed from death, redeemed from the grave, freed from the tomb, immortal, never to die again, flooded with the eternal light of immortal glory, shining from the face of Christ into our new eyes, Banishing all the darkness inside of us. Nothing but light and glory forever in the face of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus says. This is powerful resurrection life. Death strives and struggles in vain to hold the Lord Jesus in that tomb, and he will not keep you in yours. The resurrection of the body is the great hope of the Christian life. The great hope isn't going to heaven forever. It's going to heaven for a little while, and then on the last day, the day of the second coming, being raised up to be with Christ right here in a new heavens and a new earth in a resurrected body forever, where finally heaven and earth are one. 
Heaven's not way off there somewhere and earth's way down there somewhere, but the two become one as God dwells with us. That's what we're longing for. At the heart of this hope, at the heart of this resurrection hope, is life-giving forgiveness. Christ was raised for our forgiveness, to give us a new life, to give you a resurrection life, and to guarantee your eternal life when resurrection day finally comes. As Paul says in our text in verse 30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He says, because you have this gift of the Holy Spirit as the seal, the divine guarantee of your spiritual resurrection in the past and your bodily resurrection in the future, therefore do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What is that life that does not grieve the Spirit? What sort of life do we live live that does not bring grief to the Spirit, but pleases the Spirit? Not going against the grain of the Spirit, but with the grain, following the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. What is that life As we've been discussing in this series, it is a one another life. As Paul says in verse 32 of our text, how do you not grieve the Holy Spirit? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. This One another life, this life that's pleasing to the Spirit, this life that does not grieve the Spirit, it is a life that includes forgiving each other. And so what I want to do is I want to make three general points about forgiveness that will just be three quick ones. And then I want to spend a, a little time on two specific points here about forgiveness. If you're following the notes, this is point two. First general observation here about forgiveness. Number one, forgiveness is commanded. It's not optional. (laughs) Forgiveness is not for varsity Christians and all of us JV Christians don't have to do it. Oh man, once I become like a pro-Christian, once I'm like, you know, well, I don't want to say a sports figure because I'm from the South, I don't want to make anybody mad. Yeah, Pennsylvania sports, I haven't figured it out yet. So, so fill in the blank of your, you know, your Pennsylvania athlete. Once you become the, a, a pro-Christian, then, oh, then I'll get busy loving people and forgiving each other. Then it'll be easy. I'll be a pro. I'll be an expert. But until then, I don't have to worry about it. People, people wrong me. I don't have to forgive them. I'm a JV Christian. I got cut from the varsity team. No, guys, forgiveness is commanded. It's not optional Christianity. It's normal 
basic, fundamental Christianity. Verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, and be forgiving one another. As Paul says in Colossians 3.13, he says, Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Now, if you say, okay, well, so far we've spent a lot of time in Paul. I want to see some red letters. Where does Jesus talk about forgiveness? Well, you don't want to go there. He talks about it a lot. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. We talked about that a couple weeks ago with admonish one another. If your brother sins, admonish him, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. Written in red, the red letters. Jesus says, I don't care. Peter, I don't care if John sins against you seven times every day. You're going to forgive him when he repents. It's not optional Christianity. It's basic. Forgiveness is commanded. Second general observation here about forgiveness. God's forgiveness of us is the standard of our forgiveness of each other. God's forgiveness is the standard. Verse 32, again in our text, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Bible just upped the stakes, raised the bar. Luke 23, 34, Jesus on the cross, nails in his hands and feet looks at Roman centurions and says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Whoever's wronged you hasn't nailed you to a cross yet. I don't mean to diminish or minimize or downplay or write off any of the horrible stuff that has happened to probably most of us. The wrongs, the pain, the, the dirty play, running their mouths, being cheated and wronged. I, some of us have just been treated very poorly at some point, perhaps many points. I don't mean to minimize that in the slightest. I just mean to put it in proportion. Look at your Savior dying at the hands of lawless thugs. A man who never did wrong and never sinned and never even had the first flicker of sin in his heart. See him on that tree forgiving his executioners. God's forgiveness is the standard. The depth of God's forgiveness. Think of all the many times. I mean, if we're honest, we need to repent more than seven times a day for all the sins we commit against the Lord. 
If you think you, go, you can go for weeks at a time and never have to repent and never ask for forgiveness because you never sin, or most of the time you don't, 1 John says, you are kidding yourself, dude. That's my paraphrase. <laughs> we need forgiveness seven times a day, minimum. And just think of all the times we have sinned, we have messed up, and we have come back to God over and over and over and over again, and we'll have to later today, and we'll have to tomorrow, and to the end of our lives, all the many times we have to say, and forgive us our debts. (laughs) And you know what? God does forgive us. He has forgiven us far worse then we'll have to forgive anybody else. God's forgiveness is the standard. You know, Jesus gave a parable about this in Matthew 18. And at the beginning of that parable, he says in Matthew 18, 21 to 22, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Now, in Luke, that's what he said, seven times. And Peter said, seven times, Jesus, that feels like a lot. Like, that's kind of ridiculous. If somebody (laughs) sins against me once, and I say, okay, I forgive you. And then twice, okay. Third time, I'm really getting annoyed. Fourth time, it's it's nonsense. Five, and you're going to get punched. Six, and we're not friends anymore. Seven, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) And Peter says, really, seven times? That's a little exaggerated, Jesus. And in Matthew 18, 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus says, yeah, I meant what I said. As many times as it takes. As many times as it takes. The depth of God's forgiveness is the standard. Third, general observation. The depth of God's forgiveness and the extent of God's forgiveness, that's our standard. Forgiveness is commanded. And now the third general point here. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And we all just asked God to to handle us that way when we all recited the Lord's Prayer together. Sometimes we just say it and we don't even think about it. But we prayed, all of us together, and forgive us our debts... Be careful. You really mean that? Lord, I want you to forgive me the same way I forgive other people. We prayed at least once a week. Jesus goes on after that prayer is over in Matthew 6 and he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, God's going to answer that prayer you just prayed. God, forgive me the way I forgive others. I'm not going to forgive others, therefore don't forgive me. That's what we pray. And Jesus says, He will answer that every time. Mark eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you. That's Jesus. And then, that parable in Matthew 18, where, it's, where Jesus begins by saying, no, you've got to forgive 77 times, not just seven, Peter. He then goes on and tells that story about the unmerciful servant. So you have a master who has two servants, and one owes the master like a billion dollars. And he says, I can't pay it, please forgive me. And he goes, you know what, okay, I will. Your whole debt is erased. You're back at zero. You owe me nothing. Go in peace. And he can't believe it. He's floored. Yes, thank you, master. And then he turns around and that other servant owes him like, like 20 bucks. And he doesn't have it. And he's like, oh, please be patient. I, I can get it to you later. And he sues him and throws him in jail. Because he won't pay his debts. Word gets back to the master of these two servants. And in Matthew 18... 32, Jesus continues the parable and he says, Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in, his, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Matthew 18, 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I said this is basic Christianity. I didn't say it was easy Christianity. Forgiveness is commanded. God's forgiveness is the standard. And if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. Those are my three general observations about forgiveness. Now, I want to get specific. Okay, so forgiveness is commanded. Wow. Um, God's forgiveness is the standard. Oh boy. And if I don't do it, I won't be forgiven either. Please help me. Lord, give me some advice. So that's what I want to do next. I want to go into how do we ask for forgiveness and then how do we give forgiveness to those who ask. So, number one here. I've got five stages for how you ask for forgiveness. Stage one of asking someone to forgive you is take Active responsibility. Take active responsibility when you've messed up, done wrong, said what you shouldn't have said, made a wrong turn, offended somebody, whatever, fill in the blank. When you're in the wrong, take active responsibility. Don't just admit you were wrong and then say things in the passive voice like, well, I'm sorry that it upset you. I'm sorry you didn't like what I, what I did or said. We, what you're trying to do, and we're all good at this, is to put some distance between you and what you did wrong to make yourself feel just a little better about it. I'm sorry that you were upset. Instead, say something like, I'm sorry, and use the, use the first person pronoun I, followed by an active verb. I am sorry that I did, and then just say it. Say exactly what it is you did. There's no sense in hiding it. They know you did it. 
You don't have to sugarcoat it and put some frosting on it and make it nicer and then dress it up like it's not that big a deal. Just deal with it as it is. Just be honest about it. I admit I messed up. And this is what I did when I messed up. I did this to you. I said this or did this and I was wrong. Take active responsibility. That takes swallowing some pride, finding some humility. Take active responsibility. That's step one. Step two. Do not make your apology about you. I'm good at this one. I'm good at breaking this one. Don't make your apology about you. Don't dwell on how bad what you did makes you feel. Oh man, I just, I'm so, I'm so oh, I, feel, I just feel like a dog that I did that. I feel so bad and I'm just so upset. And I just, oh man, I'm just, oh, I'm just so wounded and hurt that I did this to you. Oh, you know, you're turning this into your issue. You're making this now about you and you're inviting them to show you sympathy. Like, that's not what this is about. This isn't time for you to get sympathy. This is time for you to man up and say, I'm sorry. And apologize and to focus on how it made that person feel. I did this to you. I made you feel this way. That was wrong of me. And forget about how you feel about it. Forget about it in the sense that it's not the main point. Don't make your apology about how bad you feel. Keep it about what you did to this person and how you made that person feel. Take active responsibility. Don't make the apology all about you. Third step, verbally repent. Verbally repent. Expressly say the words, I will not do this again. Don't say, I don't want to do this again. You're leaving the door open. I really don't want to treat you like this anymore. Okay, great. Um, How about you tell me that you're not going to treat me like this anymore? Now, don't make promises you can't keep. I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to offend you ever again. No. You might. You probably will. Don't make promises you can't keep. Stay focused on what you did wrong and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Verbally repent. Repent means to turn away from sin. So say that. I'm turning from this sin. I did this. I will not do it again. Number four, don't just say you're sorry. Don't just use the word sorry. This is stage four of how to ask for forgiveness. Stage four is pretty easy. Say the words, will you forgive me? You're not asking for forgiveness until you say, will you forgive me? And that way you put it on that person. You put balls in your court. Once you've done the first three, then you pass the ball to them and say, will you forgive me? And now it's up to them. And that's between them and the Lord. It's not your job to get them to forgive you. You're not trying to wrestle a a, a, I forgive you out of them. You're coming to them broken over what you did. You admit it. And then you ask, will you please forgive me? And what they, how they respond is their business, not yours. You can't, you can't decide for them to forgive you. You can't change their mind. You can't make them say or do anything. It's up to them to do that. 
It's up to you to do your part and then leave the rest to them. But don't just say, I'm sorry. Say you're sorry, but then say, will you please forgive me? And actually use the word forgive and make it a question. Will you forgive me? And if they will, fine. If they won't, God deals with that. Because God tells them you're commanded to forgive. So you pass the ball to them and then let them deal with that, how they're going to deal with it. You just do your part. Fifth stage of how to ask for forgiveness. You take active responsibility. Don't make your apology about you. Verbally repent. Use the words, will you forgive me? And then number five, (laughs) put your money where your mouth is. Make the apology a reality. If Matt punches me in the arm... And I say, Matt, that hurt. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I won't punch you again. Okay. And then five minutes later, he socks me again. I say, Matt, that hurt. Now it's going to bruise. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. And then the next day, he punches me two more times. I'm going to say, okay, you're not actually repenting, are you? You have no interest in stopping punching me, do you? Do you, Matt? Put your money where your mouth is. Don't just say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. And this is, all we're so good at this. Don't just say what that person wants you to hear so you can just get out of the conversation. With no intention of changing anything once it's over. Ooh, we're good at this. Or at least I am. Maybe I'm all by myself up here. I'm just going to say what needs to be said and admit whatever, even though I know I don't agree with anything I'm saying and I just want the conversation to end and I just want to get out of it and go back to what I was doing and be left alone with no intention of changing. But I'll say what needs to be said and pretend like that's a real apology. How do you ask for forgiveness? At the end of the day, you've got to put your money where your mouth is and make the apology a reality. If you say, I will not do that again, that's got to be your top priority. Don't do it again. Those are five stages for how to ask for forgiveness. Now, what if you're the person that is being approached? Someone comes to you and they do the five steps, and now the ball's in your court, what do you do? Five stages of giving forgiveness. If the first, if asking for forgiveness was hard, I think this one's even harder. Five stages. Number one, extend the grace God has extended to you. God's forgiveness, the depth of his forgiveness and the extent of his forgiveness is the standard. So you should, first thought should be, I have been shown such boundless amazing, breathtaking mercy, such grace and patience has been extended to me. Everything in me now doesn't want to extend grace because I've been wronged and hurt and offended. And I don't want to do it. But God, help me to extend the grace you've extended to me. This is going back to bear with one another. 
Verse 32 in our text, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Extend the grace that you've been given. Number two, drop the charges. Drop the charges. How do you give forgiveness? First, you extend grace, and then second, you have to accept the apology. And then, after you've accepted it, don't hold it against that person after the fact. Don't just say, I accept your apology, I forgive you, but inside, hold on to it like a club. And the next time you see that person or next time something goes wrong, you're ready to hit them over the head with that again, even though you forgave them. You have to drop the charges. That means not guilty. That means you cannot be penalized, punished, or beat up over what you did anymore. I've dropped the charges. It doesn't make what you did okay. It doesn't erase the fact you did it. Doesn't mean all of a sudden, oh, you're such a nice guy, even though you wronged me. No. It doesn't pretend everything's fine. But if you're really going to forgive someone, you have to actually drop the charges and authentically accept the apology, which means you don't hold it against them later. You don't keep bringing it up. Oh, yeah, well, you did this a couple months ago, remember? Yeah, but you forgave me for that. Or did you? Number three, you extend grace that you've been given, you drop the charges, and then number three, you have to release the prisoner. Release the prisoner. You do not hold a grudge and you do not become resentful. Oh, this is what we're just programmed to do is fallen, broken, sinful people. Is that that person wronged me in this way and I will not let it go and I will not forget it and I will hold you in shackles. I will hold that grudge against you. It's a form of revenge. It's an internal form of revenge. I may not go out of my way to wrong you back, but buddy, I'm going to wrong you in my heart. I'm going to wrong you in my head. I'm going to wrong you when I talk about you. I'm going to wrong you internally. That's my revenge. That's how I get even. I won't do it to you or to your face, but buddy, I'll talk and I'll think and I'll feel and I'll seethe. You know who the prisoner is there? It's you. You've wrapped yourselves in those shackles. And now you're the prisoner. Release the prisoner. That person that you're holding the grudge against. But then take the handcuffs off yourself too. Release the prisoner. Let go of the grudge. That requires making a sacrifice. Sacrifice your right to feel upset over being wounded. Sacrifice your desire to get even. Sacrifice. Lay it down. Swallow pride and self. Extend grace. Drop the charges. Release the prisoner. Number four. Aim for restoration. Your desire should be for restoration. Paul says in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13. He says, finally brothers, aim for restoration. Comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of peace will be with you. This last one, forgive each other, flows out of all the other ones, all the other one another's. Aim for restoration. Make that your goal. 
Your desire in accepting someone's forgiveness or accepting someone's apology and giving forgiveness is I want us to get back what we lost. Restoration. Make that your goal. And number five, begin the process of reconciliation. And I word that very carefully. Begin the process of reconciliation. It will not happen automatically. You can't microwave reconciliation. It's an all-day thing. It's not something you can just do quickly. But that's got to be the goal. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, if you're in the middle of worship and you think, Oh, there's someone I'm not forgiving or someone who isn't forgiving me. He, Jesus says, I'd rather you leave the church service, go find that person, try to be reconciled, and then come back and finish singing my praise. He prioritizes reconciliation over you being in worship. If you're in the middle of offering a gift on the altar and you remember... You need to be reconciled to somebody. Stop worshiping. Go get reconciled. And then come back and finish worshiping. It is a process. And it does take time. Begin the process. Begin working towards it. And be patient. Be patient. Heal. Build that trust back. Pray. Seek help. But remember... Forgiveness is not optional. Reconciliation is a process, but Jesus fully expects that process to end in full restoration. And so we've got to bear with one another in love and pursue peace. Those first two one another's. We do that so that we can arrive at the resurrection together. All right, I want to conclude. I want to conclude by reconnecting our brief survey, our study of forgiveness with the resurrection where we began. We'll come in for a landing right here. A life of repentance and a life of forgiveness do not come naturally to us. We would rather defend ourselves, justify ourselves, and protect ourselves. And the reason we do that is because, number one, we're stubborn. And number two, we really do want to believe we're better than we actually are. Our sinful hearts have this innate impulse, this fallen compulsion for self-righteousness. And the one another life, the resurrection life, it's not easy. Because we do like to hold grudges. We do like that internal form of revenge. They did me wrong, so I'm going to be angry with them forever. And I'm done with them for good. But that is just a form of bondage, like I said, that we put ourselves in. And it leads to bitterness, and it leads to resentment, and it makes us sour and touchy. And it sucks the life and the joy right out of you. 
And it will distort your attitude and your relationships in all sorts of twisted ways that don't seem connected at first, but they can all be traced back to this problem, this festering problem of unforgiveness. And we all deal with this. It's, as a, this series, I feel like, has brought us to the edge, to the brink. It's like you're standing on the edge of everything you've never been before but wish you could be. All this bondage that weighs you down. The new life is right there. You are standing on the edge of this Christian life you've always wanted, but can't seem to get to. You're right on the edge. If you could just take that plunge, but all this junk in our lives weighs us down and won't let us even get off the edge. We can't even jump forward. It's weighing us down. But that life that God's calling us to is right there. It's right there. This is what verse 31 in our text says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. We got to get that junk out. And guys, this is the promise of Easter. It's the promise that Jesus wants to raise the dead in you. He wants to make you new, Christian. He wants you to be new. He wants you to get that junk out and give it to Him. And let Him begin to heal and cleanse and renew and restore. And wash away the wounds in the past that weighs you down. And help you forgive And to ask for forgiveness. There's so much deadness we carry around with us. And wonder why we're not content. And why we can't live the life we wish we would. And why aren't we happy. And where's it all going. And what's it all mean. And what's the use. Is it worth it. Jesus wants to raise the dead in you today Christian. Will you say today. Oh Lord. Raise the dead in me. Give me new life. Give me spiritual life in your presence. Restore me, heal me, give me grace so that I can give it to others. Freely I've received, freely I want to give. Who of you wants to say today, Oh Lord, raise the dead in me? Let's ask Him for that now. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You would indeed raise the dead in each one of us to make us new, to heal us, to help us get all of the old bitterness and wrath and anger and resentment and malevolence and twistedness. Just unravel it. Get it out of us. Cut it out. Whatever you need to do. Make me new and make me whole and help me recover the joy of my salvation. And help me release those that I hold in bondage. And help me to be free from all the weight of sin that holds me back. And let me jump off the edge. Make me a new man, a new woman. New and clean and right and holy in your presence. I don't want to live a life that brings grief to the Holy Spirit anymore. Help me to live this one another life, this resurrected life. And let it change the way I relate to my spouse and my kids and my friends and my fellow believers at church, let it just transform me to be more like my precious Savior. Do that for us, Lord. Raise the dead in each one of us and make us so eager and excited 
that you're going to raise us from our tombs one day. Get us ready. Give us a taste of that now and let us live a a resurrection life. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.